0: The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com GetCertified.
1: and welcome to Ramdas here and now I'm Ragu Marcus this talk from Ramdas harks back to May of 1974 I always like looking at these dates now that we're getting this media library together by the way with the support of many of you out there over the last I mean this has been going on where do we we're at least 3 years of of really Two and a half of intensive, focused work to try and bring this media library. We're talking, of course, four to five decades, thousands and thousands of hours of of different media, not just Ramdas talks, but Ramdas with many of his other friends and teachers. And uh, so now that we can actually get some what's called metadata, where we can actually see where this was, where the where the event happened and when it happened and who was involved and so on, um, it's pretty great. And then to see these dates, I love the dates because then you, go, you think, okay, what was I doing at that point in relation to Ramdas? Uh, and it's it's just mind blowing to think, wow, those many years that we've known each other and uh, pretty great. Of course, you most of you out there were not even maybe a thought in your parents' mind eye. So this is uh it's actually from Sonoma County. Uh and it is a Q&A that uh that our erstwhile media library curator, Nathan, picked out. Uh and uh there's some particularly uh, incisive questions and answers and uh the first one is around the pr- predicament of judging accepting and rejecting and uh, this is something i myself could hear over and over and over i don't know about you but just you know you walk around in in the world anywhere you go and you can witness your mind doing a, a ju- i mean the level and the amount of judging maybe it's just me folks But, um, boy, yeah, just uh, categorizing people, shapes, sizes, uh, female, male, young, old. I mean, there's so many things to judge. It's just endless. And um, he says, take everything that comes your way as a divine teaching or grace, and you work with it. When you get criticized, you say, thanks. Thanks for allowing me to examine it all over again. You don't have to accept or reject everything or anything. The point is to stay open to be able to hear the truth. And, in, and this goes in relation to, to the kind of judging. And, of course, the most severe judging we do is uh, with ourselves. And uh, if we can get into a vantage, I find... Where we are aware an advantage of awareness witnessing and uh and then you see that each one of these uh thought forms is just a a great manifestation opportunity as Ramda says here uh as a, for a teaching and if you if we could walk around with that going on as the central fulcrum of our days uh Things would flow away more, but this predicament of judging is particularly uh can be ornery uh because many of us do this to ourselves um and uh it it meets our penchant for um uh, self criticism as he's talking about here, not just criticism from the outside. we do enough of it ourselves So th- there's that's a great question and some a great answer and um I guess the the most uh, the, the question here that uh, is most poignant uh Ramdas talks about uh, same-sex relationships way back then as if it wasn't going on then what am I talking about uh but uh way back then meaning uh people were more prone to keeping in the closet about their sexuality at that point uh, but he talks about it in, and also the question is in its relation to divinity. So it's uh, uh, he he gets into a very honest description of his own sexuality, which um, I'll leave for you all to to listen to him. I mean, nobody is more uh, honest than than Ramdas. It's one of the things when I first met him uh, that attracted me most because. Uh, if he could bear his soul that way in public and share what he shared, then uh, I felt better about all of the bullshit that I was uh, judging myself about. And um, so it was freeing. There was a great, great freeing moment in those uh, those early days of uh, listening to his talks and so on. And um, so the, here's the, the relation to divinity uh, in talking about any act. And, and this, uh, this is the most uh, incisive point. Anything that I can do, he said, with another human being consciously. Now we have to divine consciously, with full awareness, one could say, from a heart center rather than a mind center. So that consciously, consciously, whether it's shaking hands, embracing, or a sexual act, or a business exchange, or whatever, if it comes from that conscious place, it's okay to do. And anything that I do, where I have to push the other person's consciousness away in order to perform the act, then I can't do it. That's a terrific... uh, centering piece right there uh some of the other things that uh, q a he talks about with the con a concept of god um and uh what else uh desire and perception narrowing perception suffering as the leverage for awakening social responsibility and and this uh I don't know if this is the last question but it's, the, it's something that struck me. So I love this particular statement of his and you know we talk about this all the time. Social responsibility, social action. Only when you are fully honoring the plane on which it is all totally perfect, just the way it is, can you assume on the other plane the responsibility to change it. Recognizing that the desire in you to change it is part of the perfection of it all. I love that. That's really great. So uh, here we're going to go and we're going to start the lecture. Is there anything else I want to talk about and tell you about other than please continue the support, particularly around the media library. We just got another, how many hours? Maybe 500 hours that were just digitized. And uh, that's how vast this is. We just got to to that. We're talking after a couple of years of, of digitizing stuff. We send batches over to our guy in the Northwest. And so now there's a tremendous amount of work, of course, going through it all and indexing it and describing it and getting the meta- metadata straight and so on, as I described before. So Uh, We appreciate uh, your support, both in uh, monetary support through donations. Go to Ramdas.org. Some of you have actually offered your services with uh, editing and uh, both video and audio and also uh, transcriptions and so on. And uh, so uh, we're we're happy to, uh, to chat with you and see how you can help us. So thanks for that. And uh, until next week, this is Ram Dass here and now.
0: The question um, concerned meditation and um, the experiences one gets in meditation regarding um, inner light, inner sound, and whether the experiences of these are by the grace of the guru, or whether you could just do the thing and have those happen. Is that the question? The question is about the grace of the guru. Well, it's all the guru's grace. There isn't anywhere that isn't the guru's grace, or that's all nonsense. See, the predicament is that there is a level of reality at which grace and karma become roughly the same thing where the unfolding of your life becomes graceful. It becomes full of grace. And you see that the suffering is grace. Everything that's given to you is given to you as grace. And then you begin to see that it's all the grace of the guru. There's no other possibility that it could be the grace of the guru. But at first, until you know that, the way of orienting that way is thinking in terms of grace of the guru. And uh, many gurus work with that concept of grace. And um, it is true that being around a being who has a certain kind of spiritual development does allow you to experience things through trust in them that you wouldn't experience when your usual paranoid self. And that seems to be grace. Right? So it's the grace of the presence of that being. Okay? But you could do all the meditations if you could open your heart enough to be able to do them because the guru is inside, too. Um, I was asked to speak on accepting and receiving criticism. Well, the issue of criticizing another person versus being criticized, the predicament of judging itself is a tricky one. To criticize or judge another, when somebody doesn't do something that you think they ought to do, the discrepancy gets you uptight, gets you angry or frustrated. And that discrepancy is the thing that's making you uptight is because you have a model in your head of how you think that other person should have acted. So what gets you uptight is your own head trip. And when you can look at other people's behavior and see the perfection in it, only when you can look at your own and see the perfection in that, then you don't judge, and then change does occur, because you meet the person in the place behind their behavior. When people criticize me, which is frequent, I open myself to it, let it pour through me, listen, feel where it resonates, where it touches a tender spot, If I'm busy denying it, I know he, the person's hit home. And uh, you, you get to the point where you only hope that you'll be surrounded by very perceptive people, which, who will keep reminding you where you're not known or unknown to them. And you take everything that comes your way as a divine teaching, and you just work with it. So that when somebody criticizes you, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to examine it all over again. That doesn't mean you have to accept the criticism. you just open to it. You don't have to accept or reject so many things. Just open to them. Let them pour through you, and whatever is useful will be there and whatever isn't will flow on down the river you can trust an intuitive process of dealing with the universe rather than an intellectual overlay process accepting and rejecting Now, there are certain contractual arrangements we get into where we call ourselves satsang or sangha, where we give each other license to awaken one another. And we ask each other to criticize each other. That's a different place. But in general, just because you're living with somebody doesn't give you that license. There are two kinds of people you might be with, if you'd like category systems. One of them are what would be called given karma, like a father, for example. As you go through the spiritual journey, you can't trade in your father for another father. That one was given for this round. And you can't necessarily change him. You can only love him, and if you love him enough, he will do what he needs to do. That's how you work with given karma. You don't change it, you work with it. And if he gets to you, great, he's just showing you where you're still holding on. Otherwise, how could he get to you? There must still be a you to get to. If he gets you uptight, good, it's a good teaching. The other kind of karma, karmic relationships, are acquired friends along the way. And when you outgrow them, you move on to other beings because you've gone on different paths. That's a different kind of karmic relationship. When you enter into a satsang or a a spiritual community then the people you're living with during that time, or a conscious consecrated marriage, the relationship becomes has the same st- status as given karma. That is, if you are on a different plane than the other person, you don't walk away from them, you work with it. We are going through a transformation in terms of marriages, for example, where a little while ago, marriages were merely just special friendships. And when it didn't work, you just disbanded it and went on to another one. A little while before that, when the spirit was in the people consciously, then when they entered into a marriage and they said, until death do us part, they took on a another being as given karma, and they said, "This is for this incarnation, we will travel as two people, together." Oh, 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 ah. ah, oh, ah. Ah, yes. Ah. The other... Now once (laughs) again... Now once again, we're entering into a period where we enter into relationships more or less consciously. And once you realize it doesn't make that much difference which way you go the route, you merely listen to hear what is suitable at a moment and it can even be suitable to make a marriage till death do us part and then when the disagreement comes that's the fire that's the grist for the mill it's interesting to work with these kinds of karma so that how you deal with criticism depends on who it's coming from and what the name of the game is in the relationship will you have with the other person. Questions? The question for those of you that didn't hear it is, would I comment on a relationship between two people of the same sex where a physical relationship may be involved in terms of its relation to divinity? Is that a fair statement of the question? There are stages of the awakening of consciousness or almost the lack of awakening where people need guidelines in order to help them get straight enough to hear inner messages so that they can tune their own receiver so that they can be right on harmoniously with their own karma from inside. And so a lot of the cultural cultural moral codes are designed to keep most people straight as straight as they can be. I don't mean sexually straight. I'm just talking about a set of a moral code now. As you tune inward, you come to a place where you realize that there is no form to the spirit. That is, there is no form that you would say that is spiritual and that is not. It becomes very much a function of who's doing it, and how they're doing it. And you realize that any act, any act, any act, any act, can be sacred or profane, depending on the nature of the consciousness of the beings involved. Now, certain relationships do change as beings become more conscious. And as beings become more conscious, certain things happen less frequently than they might otherwise happen. It probably is true that lustful sex of any kind, heterosexual or homosexual, happens less frequently as people become more conscious, because the Lustful sex is so much based on seeing somebody as an object. There are very marked individual differences in each one here in terms of the karmic predicament we find ourselves in. I spent many, many years as a practicing homosexual. And during most of those years, I was guilt-ridden. I was feeling that the Bible had condemned me, that the laws condemned me. that I was under a tremendous social stigma. I remember once riding into New York City from Millbrook. This was after I had gone through a lot of drug experiences and psychoanalysis. So by that time I was pretty much what would be called bisexual. And I was driving into town with Charlie Mingus. Driving into town with Charlie Mingus. And Charlie was railing, as usual, about how the whites were persecuting the blacks and about how tough it was to be a black man. And I said, Charlie, why don't you stop bleeding for yourself? I'm so full of self-pity. Look at me. <laughs> I said, do you think you've got problems? I mean, your thing is right out front. I mean, well, how would you like to be a closet queen? And he says, "Man, you got a problem." <laughs> hmm? uh, uh. Now, um, there were times during uh, LSD trips when I experienced the absolutely harmonious beauty of the heterosexual union and the total rightness of just the way it all worked and those energies and those forces Then, when I come back to this plane I would come back into this body and into this personality into this desire system and here I would be again being turned on by both men and women and for really it turns out for the first 30 or 35 years of my life i was busy putting myself down and then i started to open to the process of awakening that says start from where you are allow yourself to be where you are stop judging yourself so much putting yourself down so hard stop trying to force yourself into models of how you think you ought to be to get to heaven. Just be what you are. And I started to just be straight about my scene. I am what I am, and sometimes I'm turned on by a man, and sometimes I'm turned on by a woman, and that's where I'm at. And if, it's, if I'm going to go to hell, I'm going to go to hell, but that's the way it is. Okay? All right. And my present feeling is that anything that I can do with another human being consciously, where we can look into our eyes and meet as two beings sharing a dance together, whether it's shaking hands or embracing or a sexual act or a business exchange or whatever it is, it's cool to do. And anything where I have to push the other person's consciousness away to be able to perform the act, I can't do it so that a lot of my old lust trips won't work anymore. Can you hear, is that dealing with your question? Hmm? Okay. Question. Uh, What is my concept of God, was the question. Well, uh, the the cute answer, of course, but it's true, but it's cute, is that my concept of God is that God is beyond concept. That is, that's the whole thing of gate, gate, that it's beyond any model you have of how it is. Um, Every model I have of God, whether I see, for example... um, I can see the different aspects, like there is that God which manifests all form. You'd say the father of the universe or the mother of the universe. Right? There is that God which is the universe, so it's this is all God. That's another way of seeing God. So God has manifested God. Behind the God and the manifestation of God is that which is unnameable, unknowable, unseeable, unsmellable, untouchable, unconceivable. That also is God. That's equally present as all the rest of this. There's three aspects, There is that which is in each of us, which is a part of that, which is also God. So in a way, it's like in the Buddhist, in the uh, Hindu uh, uh, consecration or offering into the fire. I offer that which is God to that which is God, and I offer it into the fire which is also God, and I who am offering it am also God. Realizing God is one with God, I come to the oneness, right? So that my... my, But from a functional point of view, within dualism, you use different aspects of these models for your work to to get closer to God, right? So that I can stay within a dualistic framework in which there's God and here I am, knowing that in the end, God, Guru and Self all turn out to be the same thing. And furthermore, to take it out one more level, they all turn out to be an illusion because all concept is an illusion. And behind the illusion is God too, right? So that God becomes the void as well as the form, right? In other words, it's a concept you can play with to keep stretching your mind because there isn't anywhere where it isn't, right? It's the law, and it's the absence of law. It keeps doing, dealing with the polarities, okay? Um, if I want to join for meditation work and other practices with people connected extrinsically with your energy, is there someone or somewhere I can contact? No. I am a, um, a wandering sadhu. I have no students, I have no school, I have none of that. I don't even, nothing. And I hope to be able to stay that way indefinitely. It's very light. I just don't have, I don't want to be in the hotel business. Um, There are lots of good training scenes and if you hear what I'm hearing, you do the work with everything around you. And if you need meditation, there are lots of beautiful meditation training scenes. There are lots of beautiful devotional scenes. Take what you need and trust your heart, and then we're all together. It's just like these gatherings. You get into the thing of the numbers game, and you think, well, if we have this, and then a year from now, consider it might be twice as big, and we'll have to get a bigger hall, and then another year it'll be four times as big. But there is a point where we all recognize we're here, and then you don't have to meet and reassure yourself so much. You don't have to have 2,000 other people so you can go up to each other. You're here, I'm here. Far out of here we are. Because you're already here. You know you're here. And when you're cleaning the toilet, you're here. You're here with everybody else is here, whether you're together or not. And the time-space locus doesn't mean that much. So that I don't feel the need to have schools in order to share hereness with other beings. I figure we're here whether you're here or there. Questions? Yeah. uh i had said that the only prerequisite to the next level of consciousness was despair well the predicament is that as long as you're happy where you are you don't usually move on because it feels like a an adequate reality for you and it's only when you begin to experience the finiteness the boundaries of it or the limiting conditions of it or you realize that you're caught once again in your heaven that you've created Does that despair lead you to surrender, give it up, at which point the next thing happens? See, it turns out that suffering is the leverage for awakening. And that we are so used to avoiding negative states and being frightened of them, but they turn out to be incredible grace when you know how to work with them. And the problem is when you're too happy, like often I look at people in society who just got their first big job, and they just got their first new car, and they're just having their first this and first that. And you can see that they're all caught in thinking that that pleasure is going to last. And they're really caught, they're holding on tight. And you know what's going to happen. I mean, it's like seeing a movie in advance. You know there's going to come a time when the thing's going to turn into something else. And it has to turn before they'll look around. And in a way, despair is definitely a prerequisite for the awakening. It just is. It's built into the system. Yes. Uh, Any state, you experience the despair and that opens you to the new door. And you go in and that's full of wonder and exploration and bliss and all kinds of things. And you explore that and you open to a new plane. And then you begin to feel the limits of that. And then the despair starts again. These are kind of cycles. And the despair gets very, very heavy near the end. But also at the end comes the awareness of the functional nature of the despair. So the despair becomes joy rather than sadness. That only happens at that end point. Yeah. Your question is, do I know who or what I've been the last couple of rounds around? I don't have any... I have a sense of reincarnation in the sense that I don't feel like a new being. I do feel like an old being. I mean, at least two, two births old. But I have no idea about the format of it. I might have been just who I am now the last time. We might have had the same discussion for the past 10,000 births. You know, Thought of that one? 10,000, I remember 10,000 times ago you said to me, do you have any idea who you see? And at some point we're gonna realize our predicament and then it'll be over. Till then, we just keep going through this Mickey Mouse routine over and over again, thinking it's real, No, I don't have any uh, format to the incarnation. I, there's a beautiful image that Buddha has about how many incarnations we've been through. You know that one he says, if there's a rock a mile wide and a mile deep and a mile high, and every hundred years a man comes by with a silk scarf, and he rubs the silk scarf over the rock, in the time it takes the sylph scarf to wear away the rock which is a mile by a mile by a mile that's how long you've been going through it okay so relax <laughs> that time perspective really gives you a new uh take on how desperate it all is at the same moment it's a precious birth and you use it wisely questions Uh, The question is, what is the relationship between consciousness and desire? And is there pure consciousness independent of desire? Uh, If consciousness takes an object, meaning conscious of, there is none without desire. Because the dualism is a result of desire. On the other hand, if you look at the universe as pure consciousness, then it exists, as pure mind exists, with nobody doing anything knowing it, or knowing anything, or being conscious. Now I hear your question. The question deals with, since desire narrows perception, even intellectual knowing limits perception. Is there a way to be consciously related to the universe without being limited by the conditions of desire? People, yeah, the world around you. Well, uh, there are two levels of dealing with that, uh, which you just slipped in there. That The first thing is the people only exist because of desire. You only know I'm out here because you desire to see through your eyes. See, that's a predicament so that I'm not even... There's nobody to deal with if there's no desire, right? On the other hand, you are in an incarnation and that incarnation has a set of desires. And it is conceivable that you can become awareness in which you also acknowledge the incarnation you're in, the desire body doing its thing, and you see through that But you aren't attached to it. So that you are seeing through it. And you are seeing through this one, through that one, through another one. And seeing through higher and higher and higher planes of consciousness, or deeper and deeper planes of consciousness, behind your senses, behind even your thinking mind. There is certainly awareness behind thought. And there can be a subjective knowing of the universe that is not objective knowing. You can be the universe but not know it. You can consciously be one with the universe but not know it as an object. And that is an intimate relationship because it's total intimacy because there's only one of it. So that you meet many high beings, not many, but there are beings who literally are merged in the universe even though there is still a body which they are functioning through And when they come down into being this person in their body, they can bring a bit of that wisdom with them into a conceptual framework to communicate to another person. Where is desire? Desire is in the desire body. When you realize you're stuck, what do you do? You be stuck. I mean, you really be stuck. See that in the moment of stuckness is the key to the next liberation. It's the denial. It's the I'm bugged. It's trying to get unstuck that is feeding the stuckness, if you will. Like, well, I blew it. I'm not going to make it. I've lost the link. Where am I going to find it? I got to find it quick. That is based on a philosophy of poverty, of freaky, of, I need it. If you sit with it and you say, isn't this a far out melodrama? Look at this one, I lost it, I blew it. Isn't that, look at him, poor guy. And you start to give space, the space that comes, Trunk talks about taking the aerial view, the cosmic humor that comes from the aerial view, the view of standing back to seeing your own predicament. Trungpa says, realize the total hopelessness of your predicament. Okay? It's totally hopeless. See, the real, when you realize you're stuck and you're not going to get out, you, the first thing to do is say, boy, I'm stuck and I'm never going to get There's not a chance I'm ever going to get out. Because even if you try to get out and think you got out, that's just you think you got out and you're still stuck. You're just kidding yourself now that you're not stuck, but later you'll find you're still stuck. So it is hopeless. You can't get yourself out of being stuck anyway. And it is in that surrender into the hopelessness, ah, there lies the hope, <laughs> if you'll allow that, uh, you know. But you can't con it. You can't say, well, it's hopeless, hopeless, OK. okay. I mean, you've got to really experience. you got to let that horror show be. You know, you got to let the horror show be for the changes to occur. So it's just like saying, be in the moment. Instead of pushing and pulling the moment, be in it. Right? can you hear that? Um, would you talk on social responsibility feel like Khalil Gibran ah yeah. only somebody with a great sense of humor can be really socially responsible <laughs> Only when you are fully honoring the plane at which it is all totally perfect, just the way it is, can you assume on the other plane the responsibility to change it. Recognizing that the desire in you to change it is part of the perfection of it all. That is, the Bodhisattva works to end the suffering of all sentient beings realizing, at the same moment, that suffering is grace and suffering is part of awakening, and that suffering is a function, is part of the functional way in which this Cosmos exists, but all form is suffering. Bodhisattva realizes all that, sees the perfection of it all, including her or his work to end the suffering of all beings. Like you can protest against another person's actions, When you are in the place in your consciousness, where you and the other person are, here we are. They may not be there, but you are. A protest must be done with compassion. If you're busy being us and there is a them, all you are doing in the long run, no matter how nice your acts seem, is increasing the suffering in the universe because you're perpetuating the illusion of separateness. Now, until you are fully conscious, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. We are all like, I'm in this peculiar predicament. Here I am talking to you and I am not a realized being. I'm full of ego trips. I've got all kinds of crap inside of me still. All kinds of illusion that I'm perpetuating by saying these things. How can I do this? Is this a karmic, a horrible karmic thing I'm doing? Right? I mean, can you hear that issue? My guru promised me, he said, I'd never let you do anything wrong in America, Ramdas. So I feel it's all cool. I think it was his problem, not mine.